welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning. Can you hear me? All right, there we go. This morning, you're going to find out why I love Jesus so much. Um, Because one of my favorite pieces about who he is is the fact that he does not mess around with the establishment. Uh, We're going to see him kick some serious assets. Uh, Because Jesus is, at the end of the day, he's the ultimate outsider. And so today, I'm going to try and unpack what I mean by all that. But I will say that what we're going to see at the end of Mark chapter 11 and halfway into Mark chapter 12 is Jesus confronting the religious establishment, the colonial establishment, and the patriarchal system, the establishment of men. We're going to see how he masterfully confronts it through non-confrontation. Can you hear me? How are we doing? Will I be able to get through this? All right, we'll be able to do All right, here we go. So if you don't mind, turn with me to Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. We're going to look at Jesus, your Savior, who confronts religious, I'm sorry, not religion, but who confronts religion, country, and men. Y'all with me this morning? Jesus confronts religion, country, and men. Look with me in verse 27. It says this in Mark chapter 11, it says, they arrived again in Jerusalem. So this is about 24 hours after he'd just gone into the temple and he had turned the, uh, the money changers' tables over and he whipped them and he said, my, my father's house will be a house of prayer. Jesus is actually r- ripping up shop. Like he is, he is challenging the establishment. Now he's in Jerusalem and he's going into the main temple. And that's about 24 hours, about a day later. It says that he arrived in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking into the temple, of course, who is he confronted by? He's confronted by the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the religious leaders. It says he's confronted as he walks into the temple by the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. Basically, it's the whole Sanhedrin council, the religious authority comes and confronts. And they just didn't have religious authority They also had political authority. They had financial authority. They were the religious leaders of that time. And so here's Jesus. He's walking into the temple, and he's getting confronted by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. And they try and entrap him. It says right here in verse 28, By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? Now, that seems like a basic, easy, simple question. If somebody socks you in the face, you're going to ask them, why'd you do this? 
But they weren't asking Jesus by what authority he operates under or why he does all these certain things because they really wanted to know. Really, underneath the question is the more sinister thing that they're trying to do. They're not looking for information. They're looking for execution. They're trying to kill Jesus. So by asking the question by what authority, they understand that any rabbi gets his credentials based upon what he reads, the rabbis that he sits under, and the kind of leaders that he quotes. In fact, in the Mishnah, which is the Old Testament commentary on the law, writes this, it says, if a prophet appeals to a false authority, you can execute them. So they are trying to get to the source of Jesus' authority because at the end of the day, they want to kill Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus does what Jesus does. This is what makes Jesus such a genius, right? He uses the Socratic method or the rabbinic method. He answers the question with a question. <laughs> Verse 29, it says, Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Well, thank you, Jesus. They just asked you a question. Now you're going to hit them with a question. And he says, answer me. I will tell you by what, by what authority I'm going by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origins? Tell me. This is the beauty. This is the brilliance. This is the genius of Jesus. He absolutely shuts it down by asking him a very hard question. He puts these rabbinic leaders or he puts these Sanhedrin leaders between a rock and a hard place because with Jesus is the populace, it's the people. They're watching this thing with the religious leaders. And these populist folks understand or see John the Baptist as a prophet. Why right? He had baptized hundreds and thousands of people. So Jesus, by asking the question, is basically turning the tables on them and saying, if, if you deny that John was sent by God, then you're going to deny that I was sent by God because John prepared the way for me. In fact, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, 400 years prior to this, it says this, I will send my messenger, who was that? John the Baptist, who will prepare the way before me. Who is me? Jesus. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Here is Jesus in the temple. And John had already said that I must decrease, that he may increase, speaking of Jesus. So if they do away with John, they got to do with Jesus. And so Jesus puts them between a rock and a hard place. So how do they respond? Verse 31. They discussed it among themselves and they say, we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus with what? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Of course they know. But they answer with spineless neutrality. Of course they knew. The bottom line is, is that they just didn't want to know. In the end, they were more comfortable with safety than they were with truth. And so Jesus is not having any ounce of their spineless neutrality. And so he confronts them. And how does he confront them? He confronts them with a story. 
he tells a parable which takes us into Mark chapter 12, verse 1 through 12. Listen to the story Jesus gives them. So Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it and he dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, sent him away empty handed. Then he sent another servant. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He still sent another and, and that one was killed as well. And he sent the many others, and some of them were beaten, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will at least respect my son. But what did the tenants do? The tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out into the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders took for a way or looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. You got to understand that the religious leaders, this was not a new parable for them. If you looked in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, basically what Jesus is doing is rehearsing this exact same story. But in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, basically it's this story. It's the story of, of a God who builds a vineyard. And he makes that vineyard turnkey. He hooks it up. He makes it easy for the inhabitants to be successful, grooming and developing and cultivating and enjoying the fruits of this vineyard. But in the end, what happens in Isaiah chapter 5 is, is that even though God hooks them up, gives them a turnkey vineyard, they produce terrible fruit. And so what Mark is doing, what Mark is showing us through Jesus is that Jesus is situating these religious leaders into this Isaiah chapter 5 and he says, you are the ones that are not bearing good fruit. And they are ticked. So ticked that it said in verse 12, then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. This is Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Now, the interesting thing is, is that not only did they know this passage and parable very well in Isaiah 5, they memorized it, they understood it, they clearly understood what Jesus was talking about. You got to also understand that they're standing in the temple with Jesus. And it says this, Josephus says the gates into that temple had a giant cluster of grapes and a golden vineyard that Herod had put there. So in many regards, they are standing literally in a vineyard. So here's Jesus doubling down, saying that this actual parable is happening in your midst. This is happening to you. So here's the question. 
what's creating this intense reaction to Jesus? Why are they so dead set on killing and executing Jesus? Well, two reasons. Number one, through the story, Jesus was exposing the deep and irrational hatred they had toward him. Through the story, Jesus was exposing the deep and irrational hatred they had toward him. Look with me here. It says here in verse 10, it says, Haven't you read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected had become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, at face value, that just seems like Jesus is quoting an Old Testament passage. But if you remember uh, in, in Mark chapter 11, the triumphal entry, they had saying, the people had, had saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were literally worshiping Jesus. And yet at the same time, it says, haven't you heard and read the scripture of the stone that the builders rejected had become the capstone? So literally, on the one hand, the very crowd that was chanting in one chapter earlier, Hosanna, Hosanna, would later say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So why this intense, irrational hatred toward Jesus? This isn't just unbelief. This isn't somebody just wrestling and confused about their faith. This is the person that has irrational hatred and anger so much to the point that they literally want to kill Jesus. Why? Well, it's simple. My point two, they didn't want to be tenants. They wanted to be owners. In verse six, it says, he had one left to send a son whom he loved, he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Jesus gives the parable from Isaiah 5, he says, this landowner is sending his servant, I mean, sending servant after servant, and they're killing him, and then finally he sends his only begotten son. And they rationalize in themselves, what? They said, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So the arrival of the son allows them to assume that the owner is dead and that the son has come to take up the inheritance. So they kill him because they know if they kill him, the land would be unclaimed, which means they had a chance at claiming it. And therefore, they got to be the owner of it. And so what we see here in this parable is that these religious leaders did not want to be a tenant on God's land. They wanted to own it. In fact, they didn't act like stewards. They acted like owners. They're literally standing in the temple, which is shaped like a vineyard, and they're saying, in spite of the fact that you gave us all this sacrificial systems and the temple and the Torah and the law and the scriptures and the traditions, we still want to be the master of our own fate. We still want to take control of our own life. We don't want to be the tenant. We want to be the owner. And that's what happens oftentimes in our own life, right? 
What happens for these Sanhedrin and religious leaders is, is that Jesus is a threat to their establishment, a threat to their power, a threat to their ownership, a threat to their power and control. We want a gentle Jesus. We want a domesticated Jesus, but we don't want a Jesus that takes up ownership in our life. We don't want Jesus, a kind of Jesus that owns our marriage. Because if he owns our marriage, then we have to change to make the marriage work. We don't want a Jesus that owns our singleness because if he does, then we have to honor him in such a way. We don't want Jesus to be the owner of our house because that would force us to practice radical hospitality in a way that we're uncomfortable with. I know this to be true in my own life. I don't want him to be the owner of my bank account because he gets to now dictate how I give, how I share, how I use my resources. I don't want Jesus to own my politics because if he does, he's going to tell me to love people that my politics say you shouldn't. Are you hearing me this morning? There's always that tension in our own life, right? Where we, for some reason, we go from this understanding that we're this tenant and everything's the Lord to now trying to control the Lord. Right? We go from this tenant mentality to then trying to control God, right? And think we own our life, own our resources, own our home, own our kids, own our marriage, own our resources, own our politics. And the kingdom of God wants to subvert that. And that was the problem with the religious leaders and even the people. Hosanna, Hosanna, who comes in the name of the Lord, kill him, crucify him. Because all of us in our heart at the end of the day want ownership and not stewardship. And so Jesus confronts their religious posturing. Because the beautiful thing of the gospel is, is that everything is of grace. You own nothing. So then Jesus then takes up the issue of colonialism. <laughs> look, with, look with me here in verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to teach Jesus. I'm sorry. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Now here they are trying to butter up Jesus. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me the denarius and let me look at it. Now, interesting, one thing they do get right, which is they say that Jesus came to teach the way of God. And there's this sort of contrast, right? The way of God and the way of Caesar. That's what's on the floor. The kingdom of God 
and the kingdom of Rome, Jesus and empire. You got the colonial Palestines on the one hand who were not beholden to Rome. They hated Rome. Right? They were under occupation. They wanted nothing to do with Rome. And any patriotic Jew would never carry a denarii in his pocket, a denarius in his pocket, because it had Caesar's inscription on it, right? That was that was terrible. And yet you had Greco-Roman world enforcing its dominance in this world. So they're trying to trap Jesus. But Jesus isn't having any of it. And how does he not have it? Well, they confront him with a question. They say, all right, who are you going to subscribe to? Right? Like, what are we supposed to do? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew the hypocrisy. He says, why are you trying to trap me? He asked, bring me the Daenerys and and let me look at it. And they brought the coin and they asked him, whose image is this? And whose inscription? They say Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? If he says, just just submit to Caesar, he knows he's going to lose the populace. But if he says, just submit to God, do away with Caesar, he knows what? He knows he's going to be incited for treason. So what does Jesus do? What Jesus does is he says, submit, give to what is Caesar, to Caesar, and to what is God. God, what does he do? He gives space for conscience. He shows that the kingdom of God is far more nuanced than we fully understand. That's a radical statement that Christianity gives this kind of space for conscience, right? To live in tension and nuance. And that's true because even in our world today, we don't give space for conscience and nuance. We live in a culture, especially in American culture, where we try and decide how people should think about things. We want to put people in certain boxes and categories and silos. And we say Republicans are this, right? Democrats are this. We use the word all, right? All white people are this, or all black people are this, right? You better be careful when you go watch uh, Crazy Rich Asians. Anybody see that? Loved it. Great love story. But don't get it twisted. Not all Asians got it like that. But it's easy for us to assume, based on a movie we've seen, because there hasn't been any reputation to put people in a certain cultural category. The beautiful piece about Jesus is is that Jesus creates the gospel, Christianity of faith, creates conscience. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus gives us a strategy for non-alignment. Because if you remember, this is not an issue about lords, Caesar, or God. Jesus already established that in the, in the a parable prior. Basically, he's saying that the vineyard is and the landowner is God. So he owns everything, not Caesar. 
So because of his radical non-alignment, Jesus shows us nuance and gives space for conscience. And he says, if you think something belongs to Caesar, then pay it. But if something violates God's ownership, the landowner and the vineyard, then don't. Just radical thinking there. But here's my favorite one. And my last one. Jesus confronting the patriarchal authority. Look with me here in Mark chapter 12, verse 18 through 27. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up the offsprings for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third, and in fact, none of the... None of the seven left any children. Last of all, the women died too. At the resurrection, whose wife shall she be, since the seven were married to her? And Jesus replied, are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the, in, in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been in Christianity for about 29 years. I've heard this text preached, oh, a, a few dozen times. And usually when I hear this, this text preached, most of the time, it's about Jesus confronting moral chaos in the next life. And that's not the point of this thing. And this isn't, this isn't the question that the Sadducees are really asking. They're really trying to protect power. The Sadducees were rich, land-owning, patriarchal men. They were wealthy. They owned everything. They were paid. What they were asking was the question was what they were asking was a question that would preserve their ideology of the ruling class. They wanted to know at the end of the day who was going to be in charge in the next life. Because as you know, men own the resources, the money, the land, the inheritance, right? And if they died, they passed it on to their next kin. And he owned it. And if he died, they passed it on to the next kin. So they're asking the question, where does all this land get divvied up in the next life? It's got nothing to do with moral chaos. And so Jesus, being Jesus, says that nobody's going to marry. Do you understand that undercuts everything for them? Nobody, no men rule. Nobody is subservient to anyone other than to Jesus. Jesus is basically saying there will be no patriarchal control or even class succession in the next life. 
Jesus is providing a new world of equality and community in which patriarchy and privilege will be eradicated. So these Sadducees basically are asking a question of control. Am I going to be able to keep all the stuff I have? Are class systems going to be in place? Will men be at the top and women be at the bottom? And Jesus goes, absolutely nobody marries. Do you understand how radical that was? Jesus is confronting this paternalistic patriarchal system in the Middle East that the culture was accustomed to. Jesus, like I said a few weeks ago, is always about his social experiment. He's always creating a community that's upside down. Jesus is always confronting establishments because the kingdoms of our God are completely subversive to the kingdoms of this world. Jesus is always confronting religion. He's always confronting our allegiance to country. He's always confronting those who are in power. And this is exactly what they are asking. They want to know in the next life, do we get to rule? Do we get to retain land? Do we get to be in power? Are men on top and women at the bottom? And Jesus said, no, nobody marries. The hierarchy is done. And this is the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus calls us into. This radical, subversive, upside-down kingdom where we live and think different. We're counter to everything out there. Nobody can put us into any kind of category because that is what the kingdom of God necessitates. Do you hear me this morning? Let's pray. We thank you, God, that when you went to the cross and died, the veil was rent. The wall that separated us, religion and nationalism and gender exclusiveness, that was rent, God. And a new humanity, a new family, a new community was brought into being through your death. Today, I pray that we as the church would continually confront religion, continually confront our loyalty to country, to confront a church that is dominated by men at the expense of women, that negate and nullify their voice God, you came to create a whole new community, to flatten the playing field, that we might be brother and sister in Christ, that we may relate to each other by the blood and not by our, our money or our resources, that this church would be a church that lives upside down, that is filled with rich and poor, young and old, black and white, 
that has no kind of category. And I thank you that the bread, the wine that represents your body broken and your blood shed initiates a new family for us to walk into. And today, God, would you do a work in our heart as we come to the table? Would you make our hearts more inclusive? Would you help us to create more space in our life for the other, whomever the other is in our life? Would you help us love the people you love? I pray all this in Jesus' name. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.